I'm I'm the one making those noises. I assume that's what it sounded like when an unmanned aerial vehicle exploded over the Kremlin Senate building around 3 a.m. local time on May 3rd. Last night, the Kiev regime attempted a drone strike against the residence of the President of the Russian Federation at the Kremlin. That's what Putin's spokespeople said in an official statement the next day. Timely action by the military and special services involving radar systems enabled them to disable the devices. They crashed into the Kremlin grounds, scattering fragments without causing any casualties or damage. Earlier that same week, um, this is me again, not, not, this is not the Kremlin talking, explosions in the Bryansk region, which borders Ukraine, derailed two freight trains in two consecutive days. Train cars were knocked on their sides, stuff caught fire, dark gray smoke billowed into the air. It was really everything you've been conditioned to imagine when picturing a bomb that derails a train. A few days before those train incidents, a far more massive fire erupted at an oil depot in Crimea when two Ukrainian drones hit paydirt and succeeded in igniting four oil tanks. As I'm recording these words, bloggers and news outlets in Russia are abuzz with speculation about what could be the start of Ukraine's long-awaited spring counteroffensive. Clueless observers like me and experts alike have had months to speculate about what shape the counteroffensive might take and what its chances of success are, but the recent attacks in Moscow, Bryansk, in Belgorod, and Crimea, they raise other questions about how the Russian authorities are guarding territories that are, from Kiev's perspective, behind enemy lines. So just how is Russia defending against Ukrainian drone attacks and special operations? And what do these tactics mean for Kiev's war effort? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's episode, I spoke to two experts about drone attacks on targets inside Russia and Crimea and about Ukrainian special operations behind enemy lines, operations that derail trains, sabotage industrial production, and maybe even assassinate prominent pro-invasion propagandists. Before we get to those interviews, however, I'll turn it over to one of my colleagues for a brief message about Medusa's crowdfunding efforts. Hello, this is Anna Razumne one of Medusa's English side news editors, who bring you the daily breaking news and feature stories from Russia, as well as Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Although millions of our readers in both English and Russian live around the world, one of the key goals we're committed to is to continue providing accurate and uncensored information to our audience in Russia, where the state is daily ramping up its offensive on the independent press. This mission, of course, requires funding. And yet it has become dangerous for our readers in Russia to support Medusa. Vladimir Putin's regime has banned their publication, designating it an undesirable organization, which means that anyone who supports our work from within Russia risks facing criminal prosecution. But Vladimir Putin doesn't have to have the last word on whether Medusa gets to live or the Russian people's access to uncensored reporting. We would very much prefer this to be your decision. As a member of our international audience, you have a say in deciding the future. I'm talking about the future of the free Russian language press, about Medusa's future, but also about the future of Russian society, which depends on access to truthful information about the world. 
We ask you to contribute to sustaining our work at this important time, when this really does matter more than ever. If you like what we do, and if you believe in the importance of free media in a democratic society, please support us with your donation today. You can do this by following the Stand With Us link at the top of our website. And if you decide to donate to us today, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of this show. Okay, let's get back to this week's show. By jumping right into the conversation that dominated speculation immediately following news reports about the two drones that hit the Kremlin on May 3rd. Was this a Ukrainian special op or a Russian false flag operation? It seems to me that it's probably unlikely they did a false flag here because when you talk about the security services and the MOD and the senior element of the Russian government, two UAVs hitting the Kremlin is a pretty embarrassing event for all of them. You know that voice. It's Rob Lee, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute who's been meticulously gathering operational data about the conflict since even before Russian troops started pouring over the Ukrainian border. Rob told me that Moscow had relatively little to gain from faking a drone attack against Russia's most symbolic fortress. Right. It's, it's embarrassing for Russia's leadership. It's embarrassing for the FSB, the MOD, FSO. You'd think they'd rather some kind of false flag that didn't make them look like they're, they're failing to do their jobs. And so that reason alone, I think the embarrassment is greater than, than anything this would have gained. I don't think there's, there's too much upside in terms of getting more kind of popular support for the war in Russia, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure it, it was needed or played much a role or, or the timing made that much sense. And of course, look, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine's defense intelligence has been doing a lot of quite kind of spectacular, you know, uh, operations inside Russia and in Crimea. And they've had success, you know, doing attacks on Russian air bases, right? Just damaging and destroying Russian bombers, um, you know, a variety of strikes in Crimea. And, I, you know, personally, I, I, I assume, I think people came to the assumption that the UAVs were launched from Ukraine and that that was the only way they might get to Moscow. But my assumption is that a lot of the things that Ukraine's been doing is they've been operating behind, you know, within Russia or within Crimea or within occupied territories. They launch UAVs from there. And that makes it more difficult for Russian air defense to figure out where it's coming from because it's not, you know, going across the front line where you pick it up and have time to destroy it. So anyway, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I don't have all the facts, but yeah. the false flag idea here di didn't really make too much sense to me. And I think, you know, the, you know, again, it strikes me that the more likely answer is that, you know, Ukraine did this and, and Ukraine did it right before the Victory Day Parade to kind of demonstrate maybe the, the weakness of the Russian government and, you know, that they can, they can strike anywhere they want to. Right. And, you know, I think that's probably what the uh, main reason was. Also returning to the podcast is journalist Roman Dabrahotov, the editor-in-chief of the news outlet The Insider, which often partners with Bellingcat on investigations related to the Russian and Ukrainian intelligence communities. Roman told me that the Russian military is no stranger to false flag operations, and researchers have had lots of practice identifying them, which is why he's confident that the Kremlin drone attack was not faked. We see, we see false flag operations uh, very often, and that's why we understand that this time it is not false flag operations, because these false flag operations are usually very stupid, and they are, it's very easy to see that they are false flag operations. Mm. Like, um, uh, when we already were preparing that they would start in full-scale invasion, we were waiting for what kind of force-flag operation that would be. And uh, many people even don't remember those several force-flag operations they did because they were so silly and so low-scale that no one even really paid attention. So 
there were some people claimed to be Ukrainian intelligence who made some provocation on some chemical factory, which actually didn't happen. There were also some small building blown up on Russian border and uh, like also it was kind of Ukrainian attack. So it was so stupid and so, so useless for Ukraine that like no one would really attribute it to Ukraine. Well, here we see that actually it was very painful in sense of like Russian propaganda and what they have been speaking about for months about how actually Russia is strong and secure and uh, how it's good in defending our sky, etc. And suddenly we see that like rights, it was actually two drones, right? So two explosions on Kremlin. Well, even, even if it, Kremlin would need some force flag operation like this, they would choose something different because the cost in image of Russian defense is bigger than any possible response Russia can do. They, they would never, they would never do a force flag operation like this one. How difficult is it to detect drones like this, like the two that exploded over the Kremlin? We don't, I don't know. It's unclear if they were shot down, I guess, or that was if they blew up by design the way they did. Yeah. But I mean, like, how how hard is it to say if you're the, if you're in charge of air defense of Moscow, how hard is your job? So UAVs are harder to see, I think, on radar, but they're easier if you know the direction they might come from, right? So Russian air defenses in Ukraine, if they know where the front line is, right, they know where to look, they know what to, to be on the, on the lookout for. Part of the issue is that if you're an air defense crew in Moscow, you really don't want to make a mistake and uh, have a false, a false positive where nothing's in the air and you start firing 30 millimeter rounds around center of Moscow, right? Because, because they have to come down somewhere? Or? Yeah. So, so you, don't, you don't want to fire missiles. You don't want to fire... We saw earlier this, this year that, uh, or last year, Russia was putting Ponsiris um, air defense systems on top of some of the buildings in, in Moscow, including on the, the MOD command center in, uh, on the Frunska and Bankman. So, you know, electronic warfare is another way you can, you can disrupt you know, UAE. What do those things fire? The things you just mentioned? The... So Ponsir has a cannon. Okay. So it has two, is a whole other cannons and it has missiles as well. So it's shooting large shells then, like cannon shells, and it's also firing missiles that somehow lock onto things? Right. So, so you can use either one. Um, they use them in Syria. There was obviously, you might remember on New Year's Day in 2018, there was, a, there was an attack on Russia's airbase in Maimin in Syria, where you know, a number of these kind of improvised UAVs managed to get through Russia's defenses. They managed to, to damage some Russian aircraft and, and, and kill some uh, Russian servicemen. So, I mean, it, it's, it is possible. Ponsiers were used heavily in Syria. After that attack happened, they actually started moving another kind of short-range air defense system, the Torum-2, to also provide additional security uh, in, in, at the airbase in Syria. And so, you know, in this case, you know, it could have been a number of things, right? So one, that the UAVs were coming from a direction they didn't expect. Maybe the, the kind of radar crews didn't, didn't pick them up properly. Maybe they did get some warning, but the people who were operating air defenses in Moscow were, you know, reticent to, to kind of, you know, engage a target unless they were 100%, 100% sure, because obviously the, the, the fear of, you know, firing nothing. So it could have been a number of things, but, um, but yeah. So, I mean, again, nowadays UAVs, these UAVs are very long range. Russia is a huge, obviously country. There's a lot of important sites to defend. And Ukraine has a lot of options. The thing they can, they can target within Russian territory, 
And it's impossible to defend everything with 100% confidence. And so, you know, there are all sorts of issues that, that come about with this. And again, I, I'm not sure what this UAV was launched from or what these two UAVs are launched from, but you can make it much more difficult for air defense crews if you launch them in certain directions, I'm sure, than others. Roman Devrhotov says the Ukrainian military has started leveraging drones and high-tech weaponry from the West to shift the balance in the war, changing the conflict fundamentally from the early days when Russia enjoyed major asymmetrical advantages. A lot of operations like this in Russia are lately. So as we understand, these were small drones that were directed from some Moscow region. So it's not like they flew from Ukraine, but uh, it was from some Moscow region and uh, that definitely were some Ukrainian special forces. We don't know exactly what kind of intelligence uh, it is very likely that is a Ukrainian military intelligence because they are mostly responsible for this kind of operations on the Russian territory, but there are so many now different organizations and structures within Ukrainian military that is sometimes hard to guess. But this is, uh, you see, we, 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 we saw how they assassinated some of uh, Russian propagandists. We saw their operations on Russian infrastructures like bridges or, I don't know, oil tankers or something like this. So this is uh, pretty usual. What is unusual is that we see that Okay, it was a symbolic action. It, was, it wasn't really hurting that much. Uh, Russian, I don't know, political institutions or military infrastructure. But in a symbolic sense, that is very, very painful for Vladimir Putin because everybody see that like there is no safe place, no safe space on any part of Russian territory. And it's actually the second painful attack in one week because it was these troll strikes and also Ukrainians successfully intercepted uh, Russian missiles, Kinjal, that was uh, like hyper sound missiles that kind of wonder what waffle. They're supposed to uh, be was, like unbeatable, right? But absolutely unbeatable. And Putin directly said that this is, this cannot be intercepted. It was shown in like this famous cartoons shown right. uh, during Putin's speeches. <laughs> and, uh, Everybody said that, like, you know, this is not really that invincible, but now we have definite proof. And that means that actually there is no leverage, nothing in Putin's pocket anymore that he can use and that he can threaten Ukraine. And vice versa, Ukraine has something they can threaten Russia because they can really reach Kremlin. Okay, this time these drones were very small and it was just a symbolic attack, but Next time, they can bring some more explosives on it. And uh, they didn't use it during military parade, but who knows? They didn't use it because they couldn't or because they didn't want this time. I would bet on the second option, actually, because as I understood this technological part of this attack, that there is no real capabilities that can stop this kind of small commercial drones because it's too complicated. All of air defense and anti-missile defense is targeted on really big missiles, nuclear missiles, or just some, something big that is flying from Europe and can be intercepted somewhere around Moscow before it enters actually a Moscow region. But 
it is very, very difficult to do something against these kind of small attacks. Right. And these small attacks can be potentially very dangerous. If, if, if this kind of drone with some, I don't know, five kilos of explosives falls down on Red Square, it can kill hundreds of people. So yes, this time on the military parade, they didn't use it, but there are so many other events in Kremlin and around that are public, that are scheduled, and it's very difficult to secure them from uh, this kind of things happening. I think that Ukraine possibly don't want to escalate it too much for now, because yes, they have Patriot missiles, but not a lot of them. So possibly they don't want to escalate it right now, but it is important that they have it in, in their disposal. Yeah. So we had very big asymmetry like half a year ago when we saw that, yeah, Ukraine started to get hammers or some other weapons, but still Russia is like more than 10 times bigger in artillery. It has uh, missiles that no one knows how to intercept, much more people and, uh, and blah, blah, blah. But now we see that like, do Ukraine have anything like where it, it is worse than Russia still? So even in sense of like how many people they have, okay, Russia have millions of citizens, but how many trained people who are really prepared to the war Russia has right now? Missiles, there are so little number left, and even these missiles don't reach their targets in Ukraine. So, you know, I don't think that right now we can see that Russia is actually really stronger than Ukraine, which was insane even to imagine like a year ago, even half a year ago. Right. But now if you see what is discussed in Russia, it's not how we will get to Kiev. It's how we need to defend our territory from counter-offense. And um, with that, uh, digging all this uh, defense uh, infrastructure also on Russian territory and in Crimea, it was supposed to be already Russian, uh, like very secure territory that were no one would expect some Ukrainian soldiers, but now it is, it is a real option. So, so many things changed uh, in, in last months. We, uh, and we even don't notice the scale of it because it is going like very slowly, but these changes are very big in the distance on, on several months. How expensive is it for Ukraine to send UAVs into Russia and to attack air bases and potentially, and maybe the Kremlin? Like, is that a fairly cheap thing for Ukraine to do? They can keep pumping that out or is it, is it very costly? Yeah, it's pretty cheap. I mean, it seems they're using like Ch Chinese commercial UAVs that, you know, you can purchase on Alibaba. Mm. You can put, you know, some sticks of C4 in them, which are not that expensive. And, um, you know, it's not too, not too difficult to do it. So, you know, as long as you've got, if, as long as they're able to operate within Russia and they, have, and they can get enough of those UAVs into Russia or wherever they're operating from, it's not that difficult to kind of do these things. And these UAVs are increasingly longer and longer range. Of course, the longer the range, the more likely they get shot down because Russia have more time to respond. But, you know, certainly they, they've been quite effective and they've been quite effective in Crimea. Uh, you know, I assume the, the big strike on, on Saki Air Base last year was likely from similar UAVs. And we keep seeing other strikes in, in Sevastopol and elsewhere in Crimea that, you know, likely the same kind of thing. So you've mentioned these, these repurposed Chinese UAVs that they're, they're leveraging and using more. Is that the main arsenal for when it comes to attacking behind enemy lines? Or 
do they have other weapons as well? Because I know there's there's usually reports of artillery fire, if I'm not mistaken, in some of the border regions. Like what what exactly what weapons does Ukraine have currently that it's using to hit targets inside Russia? So I, I haven't seen the evidence that they're using, say, NATO weapons to hit inside Russia. Um, right. It seems it's most these kind of commercial systems. Most of the weapons that Ukraine has are short range. So to get this kind of longer range strike capability, I think it's a combination of using special operations units that operate kind of behind enemy lines and then a combination of using UAVs. And of course, if you use UAVs, instead of a special operations mission where you have to raid, you know, an actual target and risk being captured, killed, so on, if you operate with UAVs, it's much easier to get away with it. So, right. you know, it's a balance of cost, a balance of risk, all these kind of things. And of and course, if you fail, big deal. Yeah, exactly. So even if UAVs get shot down, right, it is... There's still a PR aspect of this, the fact that Ukraine can strike in, in Russia and that Russia has to dedicate some air defense and other assets to defend things deeper in Russia. So not just on the front lines, but they have to have better kind of security at always air base and elsewhere. So all of that increases costs for Russia, makes it more difficult to kind of prosecute war. And, you know, again, these are, these are pretty low cost options for Ukraine. So, you know, they're going to keep doing it. And of course, every once in a while you have spectacular success, right? So, right. you know, it's back air base. I suspect what happened was the UAVs were able to hit bombs that were or just laying around on the ground. And that's what created these, you know, massive explosions. Other strikes, you know, obviously hit oil facilities, you know, that and created a huge fire. Other times it'd been less effective, but the more often you do it, the, the better chance you have of, of kind of spectacular success. Right. And of course there's, you know, I think there's a morale factor too, that, you know, Ukrainians, when they're being shelled, especially with kind of Russian air campaigns since like October where, you know, striking civilian targets, I'm sure there's a, it's a bit of a morale boost when, when they see there are targets being struck in Russia as well. And that that's not just them kind of being on the receiving end, but there's also a kind of proactive way to, to take the fight into, into Russian, you know, military positions in Russia itself. And then the attacks on, on an area like Belgorod, those are, that's just sort of standard artillery fire from Ukraine's own arsenal and old Soviet arsenal and who knows what. Uh, so I'm not always sure. I mean, yes, uh, I'm sure some of the stuff on the border, there's artillery and mortars, things of that nature. I think some of his UAVs too, depends how, how deep the targets are. Right. So, I, and, and I think there was that, there was that helicopter raid that happened back on like April 1st, I think, 2022. That was a very, very bold operation. So there's been a, a few different things, I think. And then again, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised there are the Ukrainian saboteurs, you know, soft operating across the border too. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen all these these train lines get, rail tracks get cut and things of that nature. It's certainly possible that that's it's cut from Ukraine as well. So, you know, a variety of things. But of course, things right across the border may have a more direct effect on the battlefield. Like if, if it's, you know, oil facilities or rail lines, things that help support or transport, reinforce, whatever, Russian troops in Ukraine, there's a more direct kind of effect of something right on the border might have to war in Ukraine as opposed to kind of deeper strikes, which may be a bit more indirect. When it comes to attributing these attacks, like you, you lean in the direction that the drone attack was likely Ukrainian. You mentioned that, you know, obviously there have been UAV attacks on like oil depots and things like that. And those are, those are Ukrainian attacks as well. But then there are also like, there's sometimes there's like arson attacks on railroad infrastructure. Sometimes there's bigger attacks that actually derail trains. There's, you know, arson attacks against recruitment centers inside Russia and things like that. Some of these attacks seem to be made by local Russians either acting for political reasons or maybe they're being like they're being blackmailed or something. There was, there was some kind of call campaign where people were 
we're fooling people into yeah. you know, there's, there's like all kinds of reasons for it. How are you doing the at attribution on your end? Like, are you looking at the technical requirements for specific attacks? Are you looking at like leaked communications or like public reactions from Kiev? Like, what's the, what are the what are the, what's the evidence available? Well, what, what we definitely never look at is uh, public correction from Kiev. This is what we would never take into consideration. But well, we have our own sources, and we we speak with the people who organize this kind of attacks and. Mm -hmm. uh, we also, in the Ukrainian intelligence community? In, in the Ukrainian intelligence community, among uh, Ukrainian politicians and uh, with, with everyone. So, yeah. And uh, they, of course, they don't want to take responsibility all the time for these actions because they have uh, Western partners and, uh, you know, there sometimes can be some political problems if you take responsibility on it. So they don't, don't like to do this, but like, come on, who, who else can be like Japanese intelligence or who, who else can do this? They sometimes say about, uh, something about Russian guerrilla war uh, and something like this. And uh, yeah, do those guys exist? Uh, th there are some people in Russia who like among anarchists, among ultra-right movements who are ready to participate because it's just something they like to do. And... Uh, I can't believe that there were some spontaneous actions from some kind of partisan guerrilla movement, but I would say that like 99% of these kind of operations were either directly organized by Ukrainian intelligence or were made by hands of some Russian people, but with control of Ukrainian intelligence. That's like all that we've seen was like this. When I see videos of a Russian freight train knocked on its side, flames and smoke everywhere, one of my first questions besides, is that CGI? Is what impact that kind of thing has on Russia's military efforts? Was that train carrying the Ark of the Covenant and her Moscow's hopes of conquest now lost forever? Or does it matter much at all? It's hard for me to say. I'm sure it had some effects. Can you say tangibly this operation failed because of this or that? You know, I, I can't. But yeah, it, it's anyway. It, it's hard to say from open sources, but you know, certainly there 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 are effects. Hitting the Crimean Bridge, for example, you know, certainly had an effect, right? Certainly disrupted Russia's ability to reinforce parts of the front, made kind of resupplying efforts more expensive, more difficult, took more time. So things of that nature, you know, if, if, especially if you do them right before the coming offensive, it could have a significant effect. Mm -hmm. So I would not be surprised if. We see, you know, rail junctions or key bridges or other things get get targeted right before this happens. That make it more difficult for Russia to reinforce wherever Ukraine wants to kind of do the offensive. Is it clear to you at all when you see like this train has been derailed or this like junction box has been blown up? When you see that from where you're sitting, is it like, oh, that looks like a Ukrainian special op? That looks like a disgruntled Russian teenager. Is that sort of thing obvious from afar, or could it be both, or does like? Does derailing a train require so much that it's not amateurs? It's going to be special ops. And how, like, what do we know about that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So, and look, you know, earlier last year, there, there were a lot of fires at Russian factories. Some of these factories were, you know, might have been relevant to the war effort. Some of them were not. And I think Russia always kind of has a lot of industrial issues uh, at, at these factories, including ammunition factories. They had a lot of big explosions in the, in the pre preceding years. That I think we're just due to lack safety standards. 
Mm-hmm. I suspect that the number was was certainly greater last year than normal. I'm sure Ukraine played a role in that, but you know, there's any number of causes, and of course, you know, it, it can't just be lack safety standards or or you know, people who are operating things in Russia are just not doing their jobs properly too. So hard from kind of my my vantage point to kind of say sure. which one which. What about the bombings of various uh, pro-invasion ideologues and propagandists? Does that clearly fit into Ukraine's military op- operations, or could that just could that be local Russian stuff? Could that be splinter groups in Ukraine? It's kind of everything's on the table still, unclear. Yes, I, you know, I don't know. The short answer. Yeah, you know, I suspect that th- th- there are a long list. Ukraine has come a long list of of you know people of, of Russian soldiers and others who. who they say kind of perpetrated a lot of the war crimes in Bucha and elsewhere. Right. Right. And look, I, I would not be surprised if we see a long-term campaign from Ukrainian intelligence to, to hunt down these people, you know, maybe something like what the Mossad did before, I, you know, obviously the war is the, the main effort. That's the main focus. So that's the main focus of Ukraine intelligence service and other ones. But I suspect, you know, bringing war criminals to justice is going to be a long-term goal and kind of program that that Ukrainian security services engage in as well. The ones, you know, right now, I, 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 I don't know. Like it's, hard, it's kind of hard to tell again from my view. Sure. I also asked Rob if Russia is so overstretched in Ukraine that its defenses back home are effectively collapsing. Drones are hitting the Kremlin. Young men are now drafted by text message and denied exit from the country if they don't report to their recruitment office. Sounds kind of wild. But Rob urges caution against big assumptions about the state of the regime at home. I don't know if it's a falling apart. Certainly the Russian military is, 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 you know, fully engaged in the war and they don't have, you know, this is, you know, early on they invaded right with like 80% of their, their PTGs. And they, they, even after the first month, they begin to pull battalions from, you know, very high risk areas, right? So Tajikistan, from Abkhazia, Sosetia, um, the other kind of key areas with, you know, and Kaliningrad as well, where, you know, you typically want to keep a strong posture. The Russian military is fully committed to this war. Right? They're very, very involved. They have a minimal kind of presence elsewhere. Yeah, everything else is kind of economy of force. They, you know, saw it to extent today in the, the Victory Day parades. So, you know, they're very, very involved. And that's true probably for most of Russia's security services too. You know, it, so it, obviously if there's a crisis, they'd be in a weaker position to respond. I suspect some of the things that we've seen in the Gorno Karabakh last year, Russia would have responded in a more forceful way if they had the military capacity to do so, which they lack. But, you know, saying that they you know, can't do anything, I'm, I'm not sure that's, that's true. And of course, I think, you know, the, the kind of security apparatus, right, to maintain domestic security and other things, you know, that's always a, a, a focus of the Russian leadership. So I, I think that's still very much kind of in place. So, yeah, so I mean, certainly if, if certain crises come up, the Russian military is not that well positioned right now to respond to them, but you know, not not sure that that means they're incredibly vulnerable elsewhere because I don't think anyone's going to invade Russia anytime soon. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been the Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.